This is Radio Sustain, a journal of fair trade, resilient rural communities, safe food, and a healthy environment. Brought to you by IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. This edition of Radio Sustain is for Monday, November 1st, 2010. I'm Andrew Rinaldo at IATP in Minneapolis. Food security is often as much a matter of distribution as it is of having enough to go around. Many low-income urban areas, in the U.S. for instance, are flooded with cheap food, but finding fresh, healthy produce can be nearly impossible. Food security advocacy veteran and author Mark Winnie will share his insights on what can be done to close the widening food gap in the U.S. Next, Sophia Murphy will give us an update on the state of international food security legislation and discuss food reserves as one tool to help ease volatility in agricultural markets. But first, IATP Food and Society Fellow Sean Sellers describes the exploitation of farm workers in the U.S., what role supermarkets and food companies play, and what citizens can do to take action. How common is this type of exploitation? You know, the situation in Florida is workers that are largely working on commercial-scale fruit and vegetable farms. Florida is obviously a big producer of tomatoes as well as citrus, but when the season is over in Florida, workers continue up the East Coast. So they work for some of these same companies in Virginia and the Carolinas, you know, as far north as Delaware and New Jersey. And that's really just the East Coast migrant stream, right? There's also farm workers in California who travel up to Washington State and back, and it's an estimated 3 million migrant or seasonal farm workers that work in agriculture in the United States. And across the board, you know, you can make some generalizations. Uh, wages are quite low. The United States Department of Labor estimates that their wages are somewhere between, median wages are somewhere between ten and $12,000 a year. And across the board, farm workers are also excluded from commonplace workplace protections that other workers enjoy. So exclusions from the National Labor Relations Act as well as the Fair Labor Standards Act mean that Farm workers don't have the right to collect bargaining. They don't receive overtime pay when they work more than 40 hours a week. Things like that. They weren't covered with minimum wage laws until the 1960s. So, you know, the conditions by and large are low wages, uh, the denial of fundamental labor rights. And in Florida, what we've seen is kind of a grotesque extension uh, of those conditions, which is the instances of modern-day slavery, the forced labor operations that um, have been federally prosecuted there over the past dozen years or so. And in these cases, when we talk about slavery, this means workers who are literally being held against their will by violence or the threat of violence and forced to work for little or no pay. And so it has to meet the standard of slavery that's set by federal law. And these cases have been prosecuted by the Civil Rights Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. So of those, there's actually been nine cases, seven of which have already been successfully prosecuted, two of which are uh, the indictment just recently unsealed um, over the past couple months, so those cases are in process, but easily have involved you know, well over 1,000 workers. And so, you know, I think the instances of modern-day slavery have brought attention to the problem. I mean, that's certainly the most shocking form of abuse that takes place in the fields, but really what shouldn't get lost in the discussion is the more commonplace forms of abuse, the sub-poverty wages, the denial of fundamental labor rights that nearly all farm workers in the U.S. experience. 
So what, what role do food companies and grocery stores play in this kind of injustice? Well, one of the things that the Coalition of Immokalee Workers team is the role of the retail food industry in the exploitation of worker space. Um, so beginning in 2001, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, or CIW, launched a boycott against Taco Bell, and they were calling for a few things. They were calling for Taco Bell to pay one penny more per pound for the tomatoes that they buy, with that penny going directly to workers to increase their wages. And they were calling on Taco Bell to adopt a code of conduct that the workers help design and help implement guaranteeing basic labor rights on the job. But the, the analysis around Taco Bell actually followed a period of five or six years where the CIW had been focused directly on the growers in Florida. So the step that they took in 2001 with the launch of the Taco Bell boycott was quite significant. And then essentially what they were putting forth, what they were contending was that the retail food industry as a whole is not only benefiting from the exploitation in the form of low prices, you know, for the fruits and vegetables they buy, but they actually contribute to that exploitation. And the way they do so is through their high volume, low cost purchasing practice. So you have companies, um, whether it's Taco Bell ten years ago or Publix or Kroger or Stop and Shop today, who buy such a tremendous quantity that they're really able to dictate prices to the suppliers. So tomato suppliers are caught in a bit of a, of a vice. On the one hand, the inputs that they need to their businesses, be it seeds, pesticides, fertilizers, etc., those costs are by and large rising. The price that they get for the product, in this case tomatoes, at the farm gate has steadily fallen over the past several decades. And that falling price at the farm gate is in direct correlation with the high degree of consolidation we see on the retail end of the market. So your Walmarts, your McDonald's, your Yum Brands, companies that have tremendous market power that for years and years they have used to drive down the price they pay for things such as tomatoes. So in this little dance of supply and demand, the one place where growers are really able to maintain their profit margins, you know, where they can cut costs to maintain their profit margins, is the is their labor costs. And so that's why in Florida, for example, it's been nearly three decades of well, it's been three decades of nearly wages. So workers receiving virtually the same piece rate in 2010 as they did in 1980. And if you were to factor in inflation and look at that in real terms, wages have actually been cut in half. So a worker today has to pick and haul over twice as many tomatoes as he or she would have had to in 1980. And the CIW's assertion, um, which has been backed up by studies by Oxfam America as well as other economists, is that the consolidation and the purchasing practices at the retail end of the market plays a direct role in this process. So what else can be done, maybe on an individual level, to help bring fairness to food workers? Well, the main way that people can support uh, fairness for farm workers right now is to take action around the campaign for fair food. So I would encourage listeners to go to www.cidu-online.org, and there's a take action section where people can learn about the, well, about the campaign, how they can participate. We also have an email action right now that people can participate in to send emails to the CEOs of Publix, Giant, Stop and Shop, Kroger, Trader Joe's, and some of the leading supermarkets that are involved in this. I think one thing that's important to point out is a lot of times there's an assumption that, to kind of paraphrase Raj Patel, it's a prevalent assumption in the United States that we can kind of shop our way out of these social problems. So if we just buy the right kind of label, or if we look for the right kind of label, that that's really going to be where the change happens. But unfortunately, there's no such thing as a fairly produced tomato when we're talking about commercial scale 
operations. There's no such thing as a fairly produced tomato in the United States right now. So it's not simply a matter of going to the store and choosing to buy a fair trade tomato. What we have to do is actually create that product, create that market, and the way that's going to happen is through collective action, through alliances between consumers and farmers, demanding these changes from, from retail corporations. Learn more about the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and what you can do to take action at ciw-online.org. Mark Winnie's book, Closing the Food Gap, addresses inequality in the U.S. food system and what he sees as possible solutions. Formerly serving as executive director of the Hartford Food System and co-founding multiple food security organizations, including the Community Food Security Coalition, Mark Winnie has a unique, multi-level view of the food system. The title of your book is Closing the Food Gap. How do you characterize this gap? Well, I put it into three parts. It's about people who don't have enough money to be able to buy food, which we characterize as hunger and food insecurity. It's also about our growing obesity and overweight problem in the United States and the fact that about 65% of us are now fall into those categories and that it adversely affects lower income people and people of color. And related to that is food deserts that people, again, largely people of color, largely lower income people are living in communities that just don't have access to a good affordable retail food store. So there's really three parts to the food gap and I kind of set that against this growing interest in good healthy food, locally grown food, organic and sustainable food, and address the fact that we really have some, it's not just a gap, but it's really kind of a cultural divide. We had some programs, that, a lot of the current programs that were launched in the 60s and early 70s to try to address poverty and, and hunger in some of yeah. those low-income communities. How have those programs affected or not uh, not succeeded in dealing <laughs> uh, with this? You know, I, think, I think that's the, the, the backstory on this, which is that what was successful, at least in terms of program growth, were the food programs, food stamps, women, infant, and children, child nutrition programs, and in the private sector, food banks. They all became very successful in the sense that they became big in terms of dollars and numbers of people and so forth. But we, along the way, we kind of lost that connection to poverty. We thought, well, all right, we're going to feed people but we're not necessarily going to try to help them out of poverty, which really is the cause in the first place of hunger and food insecurity. As I said earlier, it's related to food deserts and obesity as well. And we've continued to in effect treat the symptom or another way to put it is we've managed the problem. We've managed poverty. We haven't really tried to end it. So, you know, we lost our sort of national commitment to ending poverty but at the same time our interest in addressing these symptoms of hunger and food insecurity 
that's continued and that's grown. In fact, you might say it's flourished. Mm-hmm. Have we lost the sense of health in these programs as well? As we talk about this obesity boom, it's relatively new. I guess it's always been there. Well, keep in mind there's actually 15 federal food programs in the United States, which I, I've always found to be a bit bizarre. There's no country on earth, developed nation in particular, that has anything like that, has the kind of the commitment that we have to the food side of poverty. But I'm never, I was never convinced that they were about health. It, you know, they, may be, they have improved marginally in terms of their interest in health, uh, better food, higher quality food, the U.S. Department of Agriculture at least making a nod toward healthy eating. But a lot of that hasn't really been well integrated into things like the food stamp program. I mean, it was, it was only last year when the Women, Infant, and Children program actually said it's okay to use benefits to buy fresh fruits and vegetables. They needed an Institute of Medicine study in order for them to justify something that most of us would say, duh, to. So how do we bridge this gap? I mean, what can be done both in local communities and what can be done at the national level? Well, I've, always, I've been enamored, I think, with a lot of the smaller programs and projects that have been run. I mean, every community across the country, I mean, is, of course, seeing phenomenal growth in farmers markets and gardening, community gardening, urban agriculture. You know, they sort of self-help, let's kind of reconnect with food in, our, in, in a very localized way. And that's, that's a great part of our story in, in the food movement. And I'm also happy to see that those who are interested in those kinds of localized food development projects and self-reliance projects are trying to find ways to include everybody. You know, that's kind of the heart of food justice here is that we are making sure that everybody in the community has a way to participate. So, you know, we have a, you know, sometimes it's federal programs like the Farmer's Market Nutrition Program, which provides very small amounts of of benefits to low-income mothers and then also low-income elders to shop at farmer's markets. We've been making it easier to use food stamps at farmer's markets now uh, because of making the technology more available. And then we've also seen you know, private groups just saying, how can I make sure that I get everybody in this community on board? If, I, if I'm operating a community-supported agriculture farm, let's say, how can I make sure I get other folks involved? So I'm, I'm happy to see that kind of enterprise and that kind of initiative. But at the same time, you know, we're still at this point where, you know, most of that is still a drop in the bucket. I mean, you're still looking at pennies on the dollar compared to the size and scope and reach of food banks and food stamps and so forth, which are still just about getting calories to people. Um, And I'm beginning to see, I think we're all beginning to see more effort made. For instance, investments are being made to bring supermarkets back into these food deserts. Great stories in Pennsylvania, I talk about them in my book, Closing the Food Gap. And uh, the federal government has now made a commitment to try to create a sort of national model or national program modeled after the Pennsylvania, it's called the Fresh Food Financing Initiative. So we're, we're being more creative in terms of policy and also in terms of the sort of way we operate projects to try to fill those food gaps, you know, to try to, in this case, to eliminate food deserts, which isn't really that difficult a thing to do in terms of the larger scope of things. I know it sounds uh, maybe a bit cavalier, but few billion dollars in this country, we'd pretty much wipe out the whole entire food desert, both rural and urban. 
and everybody would then at least have access to healthy food. And along the way, we'd be creating tens of thousands of new jobs, of course. So we're, we're making progress, but it is still very slow. And it's pretty much a case of putting together good creative projects, partnerships around the community, both involve public and private sector, as well as the policies. And I, I stress a lot some of the local and state policy work that's going on too, not just relying on the federal government uh, for the solutions. I think it's a, a multi-tiered effort. Great. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you. For more on Mark's work, see his website, www.markwinnie, that's W-I-N-N-E dot com. In late October, IATP's Sophia Murphy attended the FAO Committee on Food Security meeting in Rome, where, among other things, stabilizing agricultural markets was on the agenda. Traditionally, nations around the world have used food reserves, setting aside food in times of plenty to release in times of scarcity to smooth prices for farmers and the hungry. In partnership with Smart Trade Policy, Murphy says, food reserves could be the answer to volatility that devastates farmers and poor consumers worldwide. Government met last week in Rome under the auspices of the Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO, as the Italians call it, FAO, and they were meeting as the Committee on Food Security, which has been around a long time, but which last year was revamped and given a much higher profile. Governments were trying to create a place where they would have some kind of oversight of what the UN system does on food, which is dispersed throughout many agencies and programs at the moment. And they also decided to find ways to involve other actors. So they've put in motion something that's not yet finished, but which will be a mechanism for civil society to engage in a formal way. And they have put in place something called a high-level panel of experts so as to have call on some independent advice and research capacity that will inform their process. The first meeting last week and a chance to see whether this new uh, mechanism is going to work. And I think so far so good. What can food reserves offer to farmers and just food security in general that an open world market either has not or cannot provide? One of the points I think that's important is that trade and reserves both have a role to play. I think where reserves have strengths that trade does not lies in a few areas. One is that world markets are not the sum total of all markets. In many crops, they're what's called residual, meaning it's just what's left over when domestic consumption is finished, and it only comes from a few countries, often three, four countries dominate the supply, who produce so much surplus that they really export in a major way. So those markets are thin in the economic parlance and tend to be volatile, just like domestic markets can be volatile, depending on how the crop is in the major exporting regions. I think the second major weakness that trade has is that, as we saw in 2007-2008, if there is a crisis, if supply looks to be too low, the exporting countries start to restrict exports. So after maybe 10 or 15 years of these governments, such as Argentina, telling everyone that they had to buy on the world market and export from, from Argentina and not worry so much about domestic supply, when the supply got tough... In Argentina's case, it was partly just to, to realize more, more income for the government. They started to tax the exports, 
and thereby increased prices still further on the world markets just when countries most needed the supply. Reserves, in contrast, they can work in lots of different ways, but they provide governments with a tool that they can call on themselves, provides countries with a tool that they can use to develop their own, not just production by creating a market, but also to develop the infrastructure for storage and distribution of food. And they provide a physical presence of grain. A lot of countries have been suggesting that countries should just have money in reserve to buy food when supplies are tight. But actually, when supplies are tight, prices go high, much higher, and the money that countries might have in a reserve will, will not necessarily be enough. Are there countries currently exploring the use of food reserves or already using them now? There are. Most countries have reserves, in fact. These were a common part of policy from the 1950s through to the end of the 1970s. And then over the 1980s, 1990s, a lot of countries started to at least decrease the amount of food in stock and to change the way that they ran stock. But very few countries don't have some sort of food reserve. But in terms of actually beginning to raise the profile again and use it more um, consistently, where we've seen the most interest is at the regional level. And, for example, just yesterday, the countries of ASEAN, which is the Asian cooperation, just all Asian countries, um, together with Japan and South Korea, this is third, maybe Singapore, they've signed an agreement that will revamp. They have always had a rice reserve. It's never been particularly effective. And they're looking at ways to have a bigger reserve and to agree stronger rules so that it'll come into operation if, as happened in 2008, the world price for rice starts to climb sharply. Another region that's looking at this is West Africa, where they're trying to see whether they can have a kind of memorandum of understanding that would allow countries to draw on one another's reserve. If, if Mali had a drought, it could go to the community of West African countries and draw from some of the reserves in other countries in order to avoid an emergency back home. So that discussion is moving ahead and has another, there's another meeting to see how to put that in place in December. So going forward, uh, what needs to happen kind of on the international policy level, uh, maybe in the WTO or elsewhere, to make food reserves a more viable option for countries that may consider them? Well, I think there's a lot of scope for governments just to make up their minds and start experimenting, and, and that's there and now. Let's see what happens with these regional experiments. Another proposal that's out there not yet been picked up is, is from an agency called IFPRI that is looking at food policy, and they're suggesting that the World Food Program have oversight of some sort of global emergency reserve. I think that the next thing will be to experiment. I think it will eventually require the governments to look again at their trade rules and, and move away from the framework that was set up in the Uruguay round and that continues to dominate these Doha negotiations and to look at something that's more accepting of a, of a public role in agriculture and in market interventions designed to stabilize prices. That, that discussion is a long way from happening in Geneva, but I think that it would be good for it to happen and that it'll be necessary. If the reserves are going to work properly, they'll need to be a bit more space, if you like, for the public interest around that, um, around that table of mostly commercial interests that you see now in trade negotiations. Stay up to date with this and all of IATP's trade work at tradeobservatory.org. Radio Sustain is a project of IATP, the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. Find us on the web at iatp.org. Radio Sustain is produced by Ben Willison. Radio Sustain's engineer is Patrick Sy. 
The music on the program was Tall Fiddler by Deo, Starling by Roma De Luna, Miss by a Mile by Aesop Rock featuring Idea, and Space Slash Time by Gospel Gossip. I'm Andrew Ranallo. Thanks for listening.